Again, if you can find your seats, and if you would turn to Exodus chapter 35. Again, that's Exodus chapter 35. We'll be starting in verse 1. Exodus 35, verse 1, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Starting in verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done. But on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our God, our Father, God, I pray this morning as we uh, talk about this important subject, Lord, this uh, commandment that you've given Israel, Lord, the fourth commandment, God, that you would bring some clarity, uh, understanding, Lord, to this subject, Lord, to this passage, Lord. Uh, God, I pray that you're with us, Lord, that we understand that our rest is found in you and your grace. We rest from trying to earn our salvation through works, that you sent your son, Lord, to die on the cross to, to live a perfect life. He did all the work for us, Lord, that we are to trust in him, Lord, and you have proven this by raising him on the third day, Lord, uh, on, on a Sunday, Lord, on the Lord's day. God, I pray that you're with us, Lord, this morning, and that, uh, God, that the Spirit would open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to the truth that's in your word. In your Son's name, amen. You may be seated. We are uh, getting closer to the end of Exodus. I know I keep threatening uh, this, but we are. Um, in fact, I think we're a little ahead of uh, schedule. Uh, recently, I was asked a question um, asked a question that, that kind of got me thinking, uh, and the question was this, is there anything in Exodus that I wish I um, expanded on more or had more time to preach on or didn't get to cover as we went through uh, the book of Exodus? Um, and when I got asked this question, the first thing that kind of jumped to my mind was actually the Sabbath, the Sabbath. Now, I've preached on the Sabbath three times in the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus 35, 1 through 3. Uh, the passage that I just read this morning is the fourth time, the fourth time that the Sabbath is commanded by God in the book of Exodus, uh, which is a lot. Uh, the Sabbath and the command to keep the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, is important in the book of Exodus. But even though I have preached on the, uh, the subject of the Sabbath three times now, I still believe that there is a lot of confusion about the Sabbath uh, within the church. So because we're a little ahead of schedule, I'm still planning to get done. Um, my, my goal is June 18th, so two more s sermons after this in the book of Exodus. Uh, because we're a little ahead of schedule, I, um, and the next passage that we're actually in, if you follow chronologically, uh, is chapter 35, and it has to do with keeping the Sabbath. Um, I want to do a somewhat of a topical sermon this morning on the Sabbath. And my goal is really twofold this morning. First, I want to help us understand the Sabbath. Now, I've preached on it uh, two times already, uh, and this is the fourth time that it's mentioned in Scripture, but I really kind of jumped into it and talked about it as we went through uh, Exodus, especially Exodus 20, verse 8, where we see the fourth commandment. Um, 
And so we've talked about uh, the Sabbath. Uh, I want to go through the understanding of the Sabbath kind of quickly this morning to get us and remind us what we learned in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, But my second goal is this. I want to explain why we worship, why we meet together and worship on Sunday and not Saturday. So that's my two goals. I have three points today. Uh, The first point is the significance of the Sabbath. The second point is the application of the Sabbath for New Testament believers. And I'm going to go through those two points Uh, Pretty quickly this morning, and I want to spend a lot of time on the last point, which is this. Why the Lord's Day? Why the Lord's Day? So I hope to uh, this morning to bring some clarity to a a confusing confusing topic for many. In fact, uh, just growing up in the church, it was always confusing to me, the fourth commandment. Uh, How do you obey that? Uh, Are we obeying uh, by meeting on Sundays? Should we meet on Saturdays and not Sundays? These are the questions that I kind of wondered Uh, growing up within the church. So with that said, let's start with the first point this morning, the significance of the Sabbath, the significance of the Sabbath. Uh, The significance of the Sabbath for Israel really spans three things. It spans the past, the present, and the future. The past, the present, and the future. Exodus 20, verse 8, says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Again, this is the fourth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 8, is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It says this, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it shall you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again, the Sabbath day, which is the last day of the week, the seventh day. In verse 11, we see that, that God connects the fourth commandment to creation, where God worked six days in creating the universe and creating creation, and he rested on the seventh day. Now, he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because creation was finished. And therefore, on the seventh day, he rested. He enjoyed his creation because it was finished. Meaning, Sabbath keeping was a way of remembering the grace of God in creation. So the Sabbath reminded Israel of the past, creation, Again, I spent way more time on this when I covered the fourth commandment. If you want to go back and listen to the sermon on the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, verse 8, um, you're welcome to do that. But let's look how the Sabbath was relevant to Israel in the present. So it pointed them to the past, but it also pointed them to the present. Turn with me to Exodus 31, 12. The Sabbath had a significant purpose in the Mosaic Covenant covenant between God and Israel in the book of Exodus. This is one of the reasons I think it's commanded four times in the book of Exodus. The Sabbath was the sign of the covenant between God, between Yahweh and Israel. Look at Exodus 31 verse 12. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The Sabbath was a sign to Israel 
that they had entered into a covenant with Yahweh, a covenant between Yahweh and Israel, a relationship at Mount Sinai, and the Sabbath was the sign of that covenant. Look at verse 14. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generation as a covenant forever. Now listen to verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. The Sabbath, again, was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Just like the rainbow was a sign of the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9.13 says this, I have set my bow in the cloud, that's the rainbow, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, between God and all of mankind on the earth. Just like circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis 17.11 says this, You shall be circumcised in the flesh, of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, between God and Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. The Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Exodus 31, 17, look at 17, it says this, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, between God and Israel. This is why the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments. Not because it's a moral law, like the other nine commandments. Remember, the moral law are are laws that transcend all peoples and, and times because they're so closely related to the character of God. The fourth commandment doesn't. It was part of the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai because it was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant between God, between Yahweh and Israel. So again... The Sabbath pointed Israel to the past, to creation. The Sabbath pointed Israel to the present. The Mosaic Covenant was a sign of the covenant. And finally, the Sabbath pointed Israel forward. And this is the most important aspect of the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest anticipated a greater rest. A rest from all labor, striving, and works. A rest found only in God's grace through Christ. True salvation is found... In the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's only when we rest from trying to earn one's salvation by trusting in Jesus that we find true salvation. And listen, that's exactly what the Sabbath day pointed to. The Sabbath, which was primarily about rest more than anything else, pointed Israel forward to the rest God's people would find in God's grace. Hebrews 4.9 says this, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, the greatest purpose of the Sabbath that, that we see in the Old Testament was to point Israel forward to Jesus. To point Israel forward to Jesus and the rest that they would find in him and trusting in him. That's the significance of the Sabbath. Again, 
We've covered this, so I'm going through it quickly, the significance of the Sabbath. Uh, the second point this morning is the application of the Sabbath for New Testament believers. How does Sabbath keeping, or the fourth commandment, apply to us today? That's the question. The church, or New Covenant believers, how does it apply to us? Let me start by saying this, and I think this is significant. Nowhere, not one place in the New Testament, is the Sabbath day reinstated, or commanded, or even elaborated on how to keep the Sabbath as New, new Covenant believers. In fact, the fourth commandment is the only commandment out of the Ten Commandments that's not reinstated, uh, re-established, re, uh, reaffirmed in the New Testament. Instead, we have passages that seem to do the exact opposite of that. If you would, turn to Colossians 2, verse 16. Colossians 2, verse 16. It says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, things such as the food laws, the festival laws, the sacrificial system, and the Sabbaths, the Old Testament laws on the Sabbath, these things pointed God's people forward to Christ. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Therefore, Now that we have the substance, now that we have Christ, he's been revealed to us, we don't need the shadows anymore. It's like, as I've been thinking about this analogy as we've been going through the Old Testament laws, because the Old Testament laws pointed Israel forward. They pointed Israel forward to Christ. It's like training wheels on a bike. Once you learn how to ride a bike, you don't need the training wheels anymore. They become obsolete. The law was pointing God's people in the Old Testament forward to the substance, which is Christ, and therefore is not needed after the substance has been. Turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. As you're turning, let me give you kind of the context of the book of Romans. There's a number of purposes for the book of Romans. It's a large book. Paul is accomplishing many different things, but one of the main purposes of um, the book of Romans is unity within the church. And why was there disunity? Well, uh, the church was mostly made of Gentile believers in uh, the city of Rome. It's not surprising. Paul is concerned with unity because there's a number of Jewish believers, Jews that have become Christians, and, and, and Gentiles and Jews have a hard time coming together, as we see in the New Testament. And so Paul is addressing these things, and he's really telling the Gentile believers to be patient, to be patient, not judgmental, to be patient with their Jewish Christian brothers. Listen to what Paul says in verse 1. This is Romans 14, verse 1. It says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel 
over opinions. Opinions, it's important. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, One person esteems one day as better than another. Now, this is obviously talking about the Sabbath here. Jews and Gentiles are coming together. You have these Jews that have become Christians that their whole entire life have been practicing resting on the Sabbath day. I mean, this is a culture shift as they they come into the church. And and so verse 5, Paul says this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. You have Gentiles, on the other hand, that never practice the Sabbath, that come in and say all days are, are equal. Look at, listen to what Paul says here. He says this. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, be patient with each other. Don't, don't judge people that esteem one day better than another. Right? Don't force people to go against their convictions, especially these deep-rooted convictions these Jews had as they became Christians. Let, let each person be fully convinced in his own mind before he acts. Now, let me ask the question, because I I think this is important, and just think about it for a second. Can you imagine Paul saying this about any of the other Ten Commandments? You know, one person says adultery is wrong. Another says that it's okay. But let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, Paul would never say that. Some people say stealing is wrong. Others say it's okay, but let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. We laugh because, of course, Paul would never say this. But but think about that for a second, because there are cultures that adultery and stealing are okay. Yet Paul wouldn't say, hey, it's okay, you know, take time, be patient with that. No, he would say, hey, let, let those that have become Christians know that stealing and adultery is wrong. He would never say, you know, some people say murder is wrong. But others say it's okay. Let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul would never say this about any of the other nine commandments. Why? Because the other nine commandments are moral laws. They're moral laws, meaning they transcend our conscience. It doesn't matter if our conscience thinks murder is okay. It's wrong. It transcends our conscience. He wouldn't say this about any other commandment, but he says it about the Sabbath. Again, look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Listen, we, we as New Testament believers, the church, we are no longer under the Sabbath law. The Sabbath was a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's the only commandment that is not a part of the moral law, right? Laws that transcend all all peoples, places, and times. Laws that transcend even our conscience. It's the only commandment that's not reestablished in the, the New Testament, not once. 
not elaborated on how the church should obey the Sabbath now that we don't live in Israel anymore and is going across the, the world. Not once. Therefore, it's the only commandment that we are not obligated to obey in the New Testament as New Covenant believers. The Sabbath day was a covenantal sign between God and Israel. And that's very clear in Exodus 31. But for us, the Sabbath is a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And listen, we have the substance. We have Christ. Therefore, in one sense, we obey the fourth commandment not by, by resting on Saturday, not by not working on Saturday, not by worshiping even on Sunday. We obey the fourth commandment simply by putting our faith in Jesus, by resting from our works, by resting from trying to earn God's favor through works and simply trusting in him finding rest in his grace. Now that leads to a question. Again, I've covered most of this as we went through the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. It leads to a question. This is kind of the question I want to try to answer this morning. What does that mean for us, the church? When it comes to to worship of God, are are all days just equal? Should we be worshiping on, on Saturday, Sunday, or does it not matter? That's the question I want to answer, and that leads us to our third point, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. Why the Lord's Day? Why the Lord's Day? Why Sunday? Now that we've established that, that we're no longer under the command to keep the Sabbath, and we see that in Colossians 2.16, uh, Romans 14, and even Galatians 4, 9 through 10. I didn't read that verse. It, it all makes it very clear that we're no longer under a Sabbath law then why do we have church on Sundays? Why do we call Sunday the Lord's Day? And, and why historically has the church seen, seemed to elevate Sunday over all other days, including Saturday? Is it just an arbitrary thing we do? Is it just tradition that has been passed down? Um, well, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. chapter 24, just look at verse 1. It says this, but on what? The first day. On the first day of the week. When is that? What's the first day? Sunday. On the first day of the week. Sunday. On the first day of the week, at, at early dawn, they, they being the, the women disciples of Jesus, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Now, all the Gospels agree on this, so I'm not going to go through all the Gospels and, and show you that they agree on this. I think we all uh, have gone through and seen that. They all agree that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. That's why we celebrate Good Friday. He was crucified on a Friday. The Saturday was the Sabbath, meaning by Jewish law, the women were not allowed to work. They couldn't prepare Jesus's body that was in the grave for burial, which it would have taken a long time to do that. They ran out of time, so they had to wait to the next day, Sunday, to do that. Therefore, the first day of the week, that's Sunday, they, the the women disciples, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, 
and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. This is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus, which happened on a Sunday. Again, Friday, crucifixion. Saturday, Jesus is in the grave. Sunday, he was risen. Skip down to verse 13. Look what it says. It says this, that that very day, this is Luke's account. He wants to make it very clear that it's the same day. That very day, what day is it? Sunday. Right? That very day, two of them, this is two disciples, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We're familiar with this story, verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In other words, Jesus was walking with these two men, but they, they had no idea it was Jesus. Their eyes were kept from, from recognizing that this was Jesus. Now, skip down to verse 27, because I want to point this out. Again, we're familiar with this story. Verse 27 says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, this is Jesus, he interpreted to them, these two disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus walked through the entire Old Testament with these two men, interpreting in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. But, but look at what it says specifically, and I, I want to point this out. It, it says this, beginning with who? Moses. I really like Moses. Beginning with Moses. He interpreted to them the things concerning himself. He, he interpreted, in other words, Moses' writings, the, the Pentateuch. That's what Moses wrote, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. Even the book of Exodus. Now, I'm guessing Jesus showed these disciples what we have been seeing in the book of Exodus. I, I, I'm guessing, this is a guess, that he spent a lot of time in Exodus 32 through 34, showing how Moses' life pointed forward to his. That Moses was a type of Christ. That, that Jesus is the greater Moses, the, the, even Moses himself promised, a greater prophet will be coming. You know what that means, right? Jesus preached a sermon on a Sunday, and he preached all of Exodus in one day. <laughs> but it's taken me two and a half years... Jesus did it in one day. Well, he is Jesus, so. You know what else this means? Jesus preached the very first sermon ever after his resurrection on a Sunday. Which started a pattern that has lasted over 2,000 years in church history. Now turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Verse 19, and in all of the Gospels, all the authors want to 
make very clear that Jesus is resurrected on a Sunday. Look what it says in John chapter 20, verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day. Now, what day? Well, the context here, we're just jumping right into this. Verse 19, the context, this is, this is the day of Jesus' resurrection, which again was on a Sunday. Now, John's already made this very clear in verse 1, that it was the first day of the week that Jesus was resurrected. But look what he does in verse 19. He says, on the, the evening of that day, then he says this, the first day of the week. Now, I think that's interesting. He doesn't say the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. He goes back and, and he quotes something that he's already made very clear. He, he just makes it, just so you know, here's, a, here's another side note here. This is Sunday. I want everyone to know that. The doors being locked were where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Again, this is a Sunday. Now look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and, and place my finger into the mark of, of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is why Thomas is given the name Doubting Thomas. He says, I didn't see him. He wasn't there. He's doubting. Now, look at verse 26. It says this, eight days later. Now, some of your translations say a week later, and that's accurate. John would have counted the span of the first day and the last day. It's, it's how Jews counted days. That's why it was three days later. Right When Jesus was raised from the dead, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that was three days later. It's just how they counted days. So, so this was a Sunday. Let's be clear. Eight days later, or maybe better, a week later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, I have a question. I have a lot of questions when I read scripture. Here's one of them. Why did Jesus wait a whole week to appear to Thomas? Why did he wait a whole week to appear to Thomas? I, I just think that's interesting. I don't think the Bible gives us a clear answer, but it seems like to me, Jesus purposely waited until another Sunday came around. He waited till Sunday to appear to Thomas. And, and, and what is very clear is John is going out of his way to point this out. He, he wants you to know exactly what day it is that, that Jesus appeared, not only to the disciples, but a week later to Thomas, both times a Sunday. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're kind of following the story here. We see Jesus is raised from the dead. He appears to do disciples and he appears to the 12. Right? Then he appears to, to Thomas. This is some time later. This is after Jesus has been with the disciples a while. He ascended into heaven. He has taught them about the Old Testament, how the scriptures have pointed to him. He's told them to wait until the Holy Spirit arrives. And, and then we get to Acts 2, verse 1, when it says this, when, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, Pentecost is a Jewish festival. We learned about it in the book of Exodus. We spent a lot of time in Exodus 23, verse 16. It was, it was called the Feast of Harvest in that passage. In Exodus 34, verse 22, it's called the Feast of Weeks. It's, it's all the same festival, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, just three different names. Um, so why is it called Pentecost here? Why do they call it Pentecost? Well, in Greek, Pentecost means 50th. 50th, it's a Greek name, Pentecost. It's called Pentecost, it's called 50th because it was celebrated 50 days after Passover. In fact, listen to Leviticus 23, verse 16. There's specific instructions on when they were to celebrate Pentecost. It, it says this, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, that's seven weeks, then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. In other words, you would start counting the weeks after the Passover uh, Sabbath, the Passover Sabbath. You would count seven weeks. So if there's seven days in a week and you have seven weeks, seven times seven, 49. Not a math major, but I think that's right. 49. Then you would add a day. Why would you add a day to 50? When you think about that for a second, 7 times 7, 49 would take you to the seventh Sabbath. And when you would add a day to make it 50 days, what day of the week are you on? Sunday. The day after the seventh Sabbath is Sunday. Right? The Sunday, the Feast of Weeks was celebrated on Sunday. And that's really interesting because it's, it's like one of the only things in the Old Testament that takes place on a Sunday. For the most part, the first day of the week in the Old Testament is just insignificant. No difference between the first day of the week and a Tuesday. Insignificant. Besides one festival, the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks or what's called in the New Testament, Pentecost. And the only things in the Old Testament that's actually celebrated on a Sunday, we'll look at Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, what day? This is a Sunday the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, all the disciples, verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the, the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. In other words, the, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they started to speak in other languages. All different languages. In fact, in Acts 2, they go out and start preaching the gospel in all different languages. And there's people from all different languages. All Jews, but from different, different countries that speak, spoke different languages. And they all heard in their own language what the apostles were preaching. This means Sunday is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
It's the day that he taught the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's the day that he appeared to, to the apostles. And then a week later, on a Sunday, he appeared to Thomas. But in Acts, Sunday is the day that the Spirit descended on the disciples like dividing tongue as a fire. And the disciples started to proclaim the gospel to the nations. This means Sunday is the day that the church was birthed. It's on a Sunday. Turn to Acts 2, verse 41 now. It says this, So those who received his word, whose word? This is Peter. In fact, this is God's word because Peter's preaching God's word to people. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day. Again, we see the author making it very clear. It's the same day, that day, what day? Sunday, about 3,000 souls. The church was birthed on a Sunday. 3,000 souls. Peter preached a sermon on Sunday, on Pentecost. 3,000 souls were saved. The church was birthed. Now, quickly, because I think this next portion of Scripture has actually been abused a lot lately within the the modern um, church. Uh, Let me just kind of walk through what this church looked like, right? The description of the church um, that was birthed on this Sunday. 3,000 souls were saved. We have the first church, universal church, but we have the first local church right here. Let's just read the description. Look at verse 42. It says, and they, this is the church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, what is that? The apostles spoke authoritatively. When they spoke, it was was the word of God. So that's the same way as saying that they devoted themselves to scripture, to the word of God. In fact, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching scripture, and the fellowship. I didn't just jumps at, out at me that the, the next thing mentioned is is fellowship. That they devoted themselves to the word of God to, to hear God's word through the apostles and to fellowship with each other. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done important through the apostles who were speaking authoritatively for God. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, they had a deep love for each other. This is not some kind of command that we are to sell all our stuff, give it to the church, and then the church will distribute as each has need. That's not a command. But you know what's amazing? Not everyone gets to see this, and so I have to share it. Because I get to see, I think, a little bit more just as a pastor, and I think the elders as a whole get to see. But for some reason, I'm just, just as the senior pastor or the lead teaching pastor, kind of see behind the scenes a lot more than, than a lot of people get to see. It is amazing how generous our church is to each other. And, and the reason no one gets to see it is because the people that are being generous don't want anyone to know that they're being generous. I mean, I've seen cars just given to people. Oh, you need a car? Fine. Here's the pink slip. Just given. 
clothes just getting passed back and forth. People in need, just someone dropping by and giving money. People trying to adopt, someone stepping by and just giving money. I've just seen it over and over again. People wanting to go to camp and people just giving money to, it's paid for, don't tell who gave the money to them. Deep love for each other. Look at verse 46. It says this. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bed in, uh, bread in uh, their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now let me ask a question because I think it's important. Where, where did this church meet? Now, many people, or in fact, I would say most people answer this question in homes. They say in homes. Most people think, and I, and I believe most people actually teach this passage, that, that the church in Acts 2 here, this beautiful church that we see, was a home church. The church is meeting in each other's homes. But look at what 46 says. And day by day, attending what? The temple together. The temple together. Well, what's the temple? At this point, pretty much the temple was a large building. It was a large building where a large group of people, 3,000, could come together, could gather together and worship together. The church in Acts, listen, they met together in a large building and worshiped together and then met together in each other's home and broke bread together. You know what that sounds like to me? Church. (laughs) It just sounds like church. It sounds like what I grew up doing and going to my whole life. Sundays, we come together in a large building, worship together. During the week, we meet in each other's homes in small groups or what we call growth groups, or we just have each other over for for dinner. (laughs) It just sounds like church. Now, there's a difference. We come together on Sunday, When did they come together? Every day. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the church together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They met together every day. They fellowshiped together, sang together, observed the, the sacraments together, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. They, they, would, they would read, teach, and, and preach God's word. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings. They, they prayed with and for each other. They used their spiritual gifts to serve each other every single day. Listen, that didn't become the pattern of this church or of the churches that came from this church. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 5. Acts chapter 20, verse 5. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Torres. But we, this is one of the we passages, meaning Luke is a part of this. Luke and Paul are together. So 
and Luke, as the author, says, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Torres, where we stayed for seven days. Now, now this is years after Acts 2, after that first church, first local church that we saw, years after the resurrection of Jesus and, and the church being birthed at Pentecost. In fact, the church now is spreading across the Roman Empire. There's one universal church and many local churches that are, that are getting planted across the Roman Empire. Look at verse 7. It says this, On the first day of the week. What day? Sunday. On the first day of the week. Listen how, how Luke puts it. On the first day of the week, when, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, it seems like, to me, Luke is making an assumption here. The assumption is that it was just normal for the church to gather on Sunday to break bread. Let me just read it again, and, and maybe you can hear it. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread... Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, if you think I preach long, Paul preached that Sunday until midnight. In fact, if you know this story, a young man was listening to Paul, and he was in the the windowsill. Uh, on a third story, and he, he falls asleep in Paul's sermon uh, and, and, and falls out of the window in the third story and dies. Paul goes and raises him from the dead, and guess what? Keeps teaching afterwards. <laughs> the point is this. By this time in Acts, the, the church was gathering together on Sunday. They are gathering together on Sunday. In fact, in early church history, we see this really in the second century, it's just clear that the church gathered on Sunday, and they called it the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. Turn with me to one last place. is Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, pick up in, in verse 9. It says this, I, John, the Apostle John, this is uh, the same person that wrote the Gospel of John that we looked at earlier. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that we are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day. John received a vision, a revelation. That's where we get the name revelation from. A revelation from God, a vision from God on the Lord's day. Now, to understand the significance of this, you have to understand that the book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible ever written. It's the last book of the Bible ever written. By the time John wrote Revelation, all the other apostles are, are dead. They have all been martyred. They're, they're all gone. The church has been established now for years. Years. This is years after Jesus' resurrection. John's an old man. 
This is years after Paul's missionary journeys, years after Acts 25 that we just read. Years later, churches have been, been planted and are established. And look at what John says, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He doesn't call it the first day of the week like he did in the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, he calls it the first day of the week. This letter written years later, he calls it the Lord's day. He doesn't call it Sunday or the Greek equivalent to Sunday. He, he calls it the Lord's Day. He, he just assumes that the church would know exactly what he meant by this title. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. It had been so common for the church to meet on Sundays and to call it the Lord's Day at this time that, that, the, the, uh, that John just assumes that he would know, they would know what he was talking about when he says the Lord's Day. The church would gather and, and worship together on the Lord's Day. It was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. It was the day that, that Peter preached at Pentecost and, and 3,000 souls were saved and the church was birthed. It, it was the day that, that Paul preached so long it almost killed a man. This is the Lord's Day. Day dedicated to coming together for worship, for hearing the word of the Lord proclaimed. Listen, we're no longer under the obligation to keep the Sabbath. The New Testament makes that clear. Now, if you want to take Saturdays off and, and rest, if you want to take Saturdays off to rest and enjoy creation, I think that's within your Christian liberty. In fact, I think that's very healthy and good. You can honor God by following the pattern that we see in, in the book of Genesis, that God worked uh, six days and rested on the seventh. But listen, it's not a law. We worship on Sundays, the Lord's Day, not because it's some kind of New Testament Sabbath, we worship on the Lord's Day simply because it's the pattern we see in the New Testament, modeled by Jesus and the apostles. We come together uh, on Sunday and worship. Now, could we come together on a different day? Yes. There's no law that says we have to meet on Sundays. But we come together on Sunday uh, morning here at, at COBC at, at Country Oaks for two reasons. First, it's a pattern that that we clearly see in the New Testament in the church, right? New Testament in, in Acts were set by the apostles, and then we see, see this in church history, extra-biblical, uh, for 2,000 years, right? But second, and this is most important, Sunday is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Sunday is the day that Jesus raised, was raised from the dead. Let me end by saying this. Easter is a big deal around big deal. The church is full of people. We all wear our best. In fact, you see me in a suit, you know, some Easter tie. We come together once a year and celebrate our Lord's resurrection from the dead. It's a joy-filled day. It's a big day. Big deal. You know what hit me last Easter as I just was reflecting on it? We don't celebrate the resurrection once a year. We actually celebrate it every single week 
every single Sunday as we come together on the Lord's Day to worship. We worship Sunday mornings because our hope is found in Jesus. And he was raised from the dead, which vindicates our faith and our hope on a Sunday. First day of the week. On the Lord's Day. just reminded, Lord, of Romans 14, uh, where we are called to have patience and grace, Lord, with those that may differ in opinions and beliefs on this day. But God, we come together Sunday mornings to worship you, to worship your, your son and and what he did on the cross and that he was raised on the third day, which is the Lord's Day, a Sunday. We come together in remembrance, Lord, of that and hope and anticipation of his return. God, I thank you so much Lord, for the joy it is to come together to sing, to hear your word proclaimed, to, to pray together for each other. and I thank you for the fellowship that we have here at Country Oaks, Lord. The blessing this church is to me and my family, Lord, and to so many. God, I pray that you are honored and worshiped as we come together once a week, Lord, on Sundays and then meet in each other's homes throughout the week. Lord, your word says that people would know us by our love for each other. They would know us for our love for each other and our worship of you. God, I pray that it's true, that, that we continue to be true. Lord, I thank you again for this church. I thank you for your son, in his name.